ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast Fred Rogers doesn't want you to hear. <laughs> it's monkeys and playbills. <laughs> Fred Rogers or his little puppet Daniel. <laughs> right? It's Daniel. A little we were, like lion tiger thing. On tiger. the drive here, we were looking, we were trying to remember the names. There's King Friday as yes. well. King Friday is the um the puppet. Yeah. Um, the, the king puppet or whatever. I kept getting it confused with um <laughs> The Big Friendly Giant, some of the characters from Big Comfy Couch, which were also sure. these are other two, show, two other shows that were instrumental to my childhood. That's right. And apparently to Sherry Renee Scotts. Okay. Welcome, everyone, <laughs> to Monkeys and Playbills. I'm Jillian Willems. I'm Paul DeGurse. <laughs> this is the show where we examine Broadway productions that had runs of 100 performances or fewer on Broadway, not counting previews. And what the heck happened? And today... We're talking about Sherry Renee Scott's Everyday Rapture. Woo, this is a big one. This is a very <laughs> fascinating, this is a unique case. Yes, that's right. I'm going to start by saying, usually in this podcast, the, the game has been what happened because no one sets out to do a show that does not succeed on Broadway. Yes. So the point has always been trying to figure out where did this go wrong? What were the circumstances that led to this production not being everything that the producers hoped that it could be. Because mm-hmm. we don't want to dunk on shows. That's never our intention. It's hard to put up a show. Artists, um, if artists sometimes make uh, art, make productions that aren't um, everything they possibly could be, that's not a sign of a bad artist. Mm-hmm. In this case, however, this show, and we'll get into the reasons why, but this show was a limited engagement. Yes. Was set to run under 100 performances. So... Instead of discussing what happened, because we already know why it ran under 100 performances, I would like to suggest we discuss why this production found its way to Broadway in the first place. Oh, that's a great idea. And maybe how it would compare had it been an open-ended run? I think so. Yeah, Yeah, because I I have some ideas about that. Fantastic. (laughs) All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Previews began at the American Airlines Theater on April 19th, 2010, opened on Broadway through Roundabout Theater on April 29th, 2010, and closed on July 11th, 2010, after 11 previews and 85 performances. So that's actually a pretty decent run for a limited engagement as part of roundabout season. So this is what's important, what you're saying right here Mm -hmm. is it was part of the roundabout theater's subscription season. Precisely. So the roundabout theater presents a whole bunch of plays um, on Broadway, Mm -hmm. but the intention is not to have them be open-ended commercial productions, but to be a close-ended run similar to the regional model that happens in the U.S. and in Canada as part of a subscription season. And I think actually that's a really excellent idea. It's a fantastic idea. Nothing wrong with it at all. This show was not in the roundabout subscription season. If we were, what was this, 2010? 2010, yeah. If we were in 2010 and you and I had been, oh, let's go in on a roundabout theater season uh, subscription, we would not have bought tickets to Everyday Rapture. That's right. We would have bought tickets to Lips Together, Teeth Apart, starring Megan Mullally. So what happened apparently is that in the court, during the course of actually rehearsing Lips together, teeth apart. Oh, it apart. was during rehearsal? This is what I understand, is Whoa. that during the rehearsals for Lips Together, Teeth Apart, Megan Mullally and the director did, uh, really didn't see eye to eye in such a way that the process fell apart 
Whoa. And the production had to be canceled. Okay, I didn't realize it was during rehearsals. I, I was that's under correct. the impression that maybe it would have been in like the prep portion and they would have had a meeting and then decided like, oh yeah, no, we don't agree. This puts the roundabout theater in a very tough position where they have people who have already bought they so they don't just have to sell this show. They mm-hmm. have to convince people who have bought tickets to Lips Together Teeth Apart to keep those tickets for this new show. They have to pick a new show. And they probably don't have a ton of money for rehearsal. I would imagine they've lost money on Lips Together Teeth Apart at this point. Yep, absolutely they would have. So they have to go, all right, Lips Together Teeth Apart seems like kind of a a well-written, intimate four-person dramedy. A bunch of of straight people on Fire Island (laughs) surrounded by gay people. Yeah. So how do you take that? And you presumably you've sold it as this Terrence McNally play starring Megan Mullally. Yes. Um, of Will and Grace. Very funny. Hilarious. You need to put something in there quick that's cheap and that has someone with name recognition. Someone who people who like Megan Mullally are also going to be like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep my ticket for that. Right. I would think that a lot of companies might just call it. Like yeah. they might just say the risk of trying to replace a show actually could cost us more Absolutely. than just... Yeah, not doing it. So lucky for the uh, roundabout theater, enter Sherry Renee Scott. (laughs) We're not going to talk about her history or her rise to Broadway stardom, Mm -hmm. because that's literally what this whole show is about. (laughs) So we're going to talk about that plenty. But just to give a quick overview of Sherry Renee Scott, Sherry Renee Scott is a very talented, uh, very skilled uh, Broadway performer, Mm -hmm. kind of broke big in, was it Dirty Rotten was the first one? I think Aida was first. Aida was first. And then Dirty Rotten would have been like maybe the next year or two. Played originated Ursula in The Little Mermaid to a lot of mm-hmm. acclaim. Did um, originated Peppa in uh, Women on the oh, Verge. Oh, that's right. Yes. I believe. Um, done a lot of stuff, a lot of very cool stuff. And is also an enormous force for good in the Broadway and wider theater community. Mm. Having founded um, Shke Boom and Ghostlight Records, which are committed to bridging the gap between pop and musical theater. Cool. And um, to preserving Broadway cast recordings mm-hmm. in the most accurate way possible. Um, recorded things like In the Heights and Hamilton and pretty much, if, if you've listened to a Broadway yeah. cast recording in the last 15 <laughs> years, it's been by Ghostlight. That's a fantastic thing. That's, That's amazing. Awesome. She's also a, um, an artist or a writer in residence with Second City, yeah. which is really exciting. She's written a couple of plays... I'm really impressed with her as a creative force. I, I don't think I realized no. all the facets of Sherry Renee Scott. As part of that, um, in the years leading up to 2010, she had done a cabaret piece for a benefit. Um, it was called You May Now Worship Me. Yes. Which is a, <laughs> that's a, that's a hilariously audacious title. It is. You know and I mean? also like quite fitting, yeah. I would say. And it was a, uh, a cabaret specifically for this benefit. Um, included that included song and storytelling about mm-hmm. her life growing up, growing up half Mennonite, Mennonite light, Mennonite light, and moving <laughs> to New York. That was adapted by her and Dick Scanlon, yes, who is the um, the co-book writer with her on this um, mm-hmm. on this show. That was adapted to an off-Broadway production called Everyday Rapture, is what and it did very well there in a limited run. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Roundabout Theater programmed into their season as a last-minute Hail Mary. Right. So in terms of timeline, yeah. like uh the benefit was when? 2000 and 2008 at the Eugene O'Neill Theater. And then off-Broadway was the next year, 09. And then this production was the year after that. Yeah. That seems fast. 
like Absolutely. That. So this is Sherry Renee Scott at really the height of her power. Yeah. She's like, I'm a shark. If I stop moving, mm-hmm. I will die. We forgot to mention the other really important thing that Sherry Renee Scott did, at least to the first, t- the first time I was familiar with her as a young musical theater fan, was she's the original cast of The Last Five Years with mm-hmm. Norbert Leo Butts. Yeah. Which was the original cast recording of The Last Five Years was very important to me as a young person who was just coming into musical theater. The Last Five Years is such an accessible show. Mm-hmm. It feels, it's, I mean, it's high concept and it feels very lofty when yeah. in fact it's actually very accessible. Right. Um, it's the definition of contemporary songwriting. Oh it's my gosh, Jason Robert yes. Brown doing a lot of good work. I will say I've come to like The Last Five Years a lot less. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, as, I've, uh, as I've grown up a little bit. But I think both her and Norbert Leo Butts set a huge standard for contemporary musical theater in that recording. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. If I were to burn myself a CD of hits, of, of the Broadway <laughs> stuff I wanted to sing at that time, yeah. it would be the stuff she was singing. Be Strongest Suit, it would be... Yeah. What's the one from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Oh, well, I'm I mean, Still the, Here. Uh, or French, still, the, uh, uh, the, the, right? The, yeah, totally. Something yeah. like that. Absolutely. Yeah, because I, I like heard my voice in her voice. Yeah. So that's Sherry like Renee that. Scott. And that is, those are the circumstances that led to Everyday Rapture mm-hmm. finding its way to the Broadway stage in 2010. Uh, uh, although I will say that they had only six days of rehearsal. Yep. And then they went into tech. Probably because of yes. the situation they found themselves in. Yeah. But they probably didn't need it, which we'll get into, I think, with the synopsis. You'll understand why they probably wouldn't need yeah. more than six days. Once again, it's Cherry Renee Scott does most of the heavy lifting. Yeah. You know what? Y'all will hear it. Let's synopsize this show. Woo! Oh, shoot. That's my job. (laughs) So if this is your first time joining us here on Monkeys and Playbills, which I would maybe suggest going back and having a listen to some other stuff. But if this is your first time here, welcome. This is the game that we like to play. Just kidding. I like to play it. (laughs) And Paul tries to synopsize. I don't know. Do you enjoy it? No, it's a nightmare. I hate it. Well, it's fun for me. (laughs) (laughs) And me, the producer. Yay! So Paul is going to synopsize uh, as best he can from memory the important plot points um, of this play for us. This play with music. All right, here we go. This show stars Sherry Sherry Renee Scott, and it is about Sherry Renee Scott. Yep. It takes place kind of in, I would say, like four big chunks, starting with her childhood mm-hmm. in Topeka, Kansas, growing up half Mennonite, um, but it seems like the half that she was Mennonite was very Mennonite, was pretty religious. Yeah, I think it's really interesting she called herself Mennonite Light, but then went on to talk about how pious the family was. As, <laughs> as someone whose journey kind of matches hers in some ways, mm-hmm. growing, growing up in small town Saskatchewan yes. as a half Mennonite. <laughs> Um, she's way, way more Mennonite than yeah. I am. <laughs> like, I'm, if she's Mennonite light, I'm Mennonite nothing. You yeah. know? <laughs> um, so it tells the story of her growing up, including stories of her family, stories of adolescence and sexual awakenings. Mm-hmm. This is all to, through a mix of monologues and pop music. There's yep. no original music here. It's all um, pop music arranged by Tom Kitt, done crazy musical theater Vegas style arrangements. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of part one is Kansas. Yep. Part two is her moving to New York and having some adventures there. Part three is after she has had her kind of breakout success in Aida, 
because it's a whole chunk of her responding to <laughs> a YouTuber, yes. uh, an adolescent YouTuber, a young man who yeah. is um, who posts lip sync videos of her. Yes. And it's by far the best part of the show. It's very funny. Yeah, I would um, agree. And then part four is... Jeez, I don't remember what's part four. She just kind of. I guess it's maybe her relationship with her child, and it's sort of the like to put a bow on the rest of the show, where it's like you come back full circle to something she says in her opening monologue about insignificance and. So within that, here's a few highlights of things that happen. Mm -hmm. I'll say highlights and lowlights because there's some stuff that I'm great on here and some stuff that is really no good at all. Mainly right at the very top, especially she throws around some like she throws around some racial slurs. Mm-hmm. And some um, some things that are, I think the idea is she's calling back to this very conservative environment that she grew up in. Mm-hmm. But man, it was shocking and it's really not okay. There's some anti-Semitic stuff. There's yep. even, we're pretty sure we heard a, um, like a slur for an African-American person. Oh, wow. Um, get dropped in there. That's no good. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely not necessarily framed in the way, giving her the benefit of the doubt that it's just a depiction of her upbringing. It's still not framed in a way that I love. Yes. So let's like, get that out of the way right now. That sucks. Don't like that. Other highlights I'm a bigger fan of than that include her exploring her sexual awakening mm-hmm. through her relationship with the TV show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, <laughs> which is very funny. It's so strange. Um, she talks a little bit about her relationship with people who are involved in the Westboro Baptist Church. Yes. Which is very fascinating. It Westboro is Baptist Church is a very hateful, reprehensible organization mm-hmm. from Kansas, right? Yep. Um, so she talks a little bit about the fact that her, that was part of her life, mm-hmm. which is a very fascinating thing for someone who is performing this in the very liberal New York Broadway circle. Right. She talks about a relationship she had when she got to New York with a magician. <laughs> and it's worth noting some of this also... How does she say it? None of it is true. It's not all true. Right. But it's all accurate or something like that? Yeah, something along those lines. So this is not necessarily a totally 100% factual depiction Mm -hmm. of her life, but it's kind of painting with broad strokes. Yes. So she talks about her relationship with a magician and um, eventually um, becoming pregnant with this Mm -hmm. magician and uh, having an abortion Mm -hmm. and kind of the emotional fallout of that. Yep. And then she does this big section about about this YouTuber. Then, as we said, wraps it up and kind of puts a bow on everything. All of this is with a ton of pop music with, there's four people in the cast. It's almost entirely Sherry Renee Scott doing the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. She has two backup performers um, who are Lindsay Mendez and Betsy Wolf. I know! (laughs) <laughs> who have become two of our finest so performers amazing. since then. It's very cool to see. It is so um. cool to see. Yep. <laughs> and this uh, this young man. Who, Aiden um, Foley. Aiden Foley. Absolutely. It's tight. It's about 90 minutes. Yep. What do you think of this piece, Jill? Now <laughs> well, there was actually just laid one, that bare. one other thing that oh, yep. I felt like is pretty thematically important is yep. her... Um, her constant struggle between Jesus and Judy Garland, like yes. feeling pulled in those That's very two important. directions. Yep. Um, and I think that kind of weaves its way through most of the play. That's right. Cause she also, she does this thing where she sings to this picture of Jesus and it's very <laughs> sacrilegious. And there's a lot of, I'm sure her Mennonite family was not a fan of it at all. Yeah. Um, so <sighs> that's in play as well. And that also kind of lends to the, the tongue in cheek. Yes. The p- potentially tongue in cheek. Like I said, I don't really don't think it lands 
but the potentially tongue-in-cheek nature of the um, first bit there. Yes. Speaking of things her Mennonite family was not a fan of, um, there's also, she also talks about the relationship she had with uh, her cousin. Yes. Who was uh, unfortunately shunned by her family, like officially shunned in like, there was a ceremony and everything. Oh, wow. How did I miss that? When she's talking to when she sings "Get Happy" at the um at the funeral. At, nope, I'm misremembering. No, uh, she sings "Get Happy" in at the mental health facility. She yeah. sings um oh I can't remember the name of the song, but it's like you're gonna make you're gonna make me love you or something like that to Jesus. Yes, right. at her cousin's shunning ceremony. Right. When she <gasps> sings that whole section of her singing to Jesus about how horned up she is for Jesus. Right. Is at her cousin's shunning ceremony. Right. Oh. Jill, what do you think of this piece? Okay. Well, okay. Here. uh, Okay. That's a big question to ask right now, maybe. Okay. I'm going to read the synopsis from Broadway.com. Great. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. And then I think we can get into the book and the message and how we feel about that. Because I kind of think it's all wrapped up into one thing. I think that's fantastic. Okay. So from Broadway.com, they say, Everyday Rapture is the semi-autobiographical story of stage star Sherry Renee Scott, a small-town Kansas girl with a half-Mennonite background. Scott details how she followed the call of New York City all the way to Broadway, now a successful real-life semi-diva. We'll get into that later. (laughs) Scott uses this play with music to chronicle her climb to the middle of the top. Again, we'll get into that later. (laughs) Giving audiences comedic glimpses into uh, her religious upbringing, musical flashes of her dangerous journey into the depths of YouTube, and a more complete portrait of one not-so-average blonde Broadway bombshell. Like, I'm sorry, you can't call her a blonde Broadway bombshell and then, like, try to tell me that she's, like, (laughs) semi-successful. Sorry, it just... (laughs) Can you tell how I feel about it? It's very. It's. I'm. I'm, I'm glad we we were able to say at the very top of the podcast what big fans we are of Sherry Renee yes. Scott for the work she's done. Yes. So that we can have that out of the way to say <laughs> this is a weird show, and I'm I'm not sure how this plays. This played to almost universally critical acclaim. It was. It's hard to find someone um, yeah. at the time who had a bad thing to say about this show, and I have a lot of trouble with a lot of the things in this show. I'm going to read out our um, credits real yes, quick. Yes, totally. And then we'll get into the book and how we how we feel. Yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> I think most of the problems are actually tied to book by Dick Scanlon and Sherry Renee Scott. Yep. They've written a couple of shows together. They're a decent team. And Dick Scanlon, you may know from Thoroughly Modern Millie. That's correct. Music arranged and orchestrated by Tom Kitt. Our friend from Next to Normal. Absolutely. American Idiot, which I always forget. Not only a fantastic composer, but a really talented arranger. Yes. Excellent arranger. Mm -hmm. Um, And then music by a lot of people, Mm -hmm. including Tom Waits and Elton John and Arlen is in there. Uh, Bono. Bono and the Edge. U2 is in there. Oh, that's right. Yep. (laughs) If you couldn't tell, this is a jukebox show. (laughs) This is the weirdest jukebox show we're ever going to cover. It's so fascinating. Okay, here we go. The book first? Yeah, yeah okay. The book first. <clears throat> well, let's talk about the nature of cabaret as a style. Okay. Because there is no question this is a cabaret piece. I mean, y- you can see that 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 has been a part of the creation of the piece. Oh, do you disagree that it's not just a straight-up cabaret piece now? Well, I think they Very tried to not be. Yeah. For this mm-hmm. venue. Yep. Yeah. Like, they were like, oh, let's make it more of a big show. Let's yeah. put, 
some glitter on it. I don't know. Whatever. I, but, <laughs> I agree completely. Yeah, to me, everything in the book, the way the book is written, the way the book is performed is mm-hmm. very much a drink in one hand right. at a bar with uh-huh, 50 people in it. Yeah. Cabaret. Yeah. This book is weird. So besides the really like problematic moments at yep. the beginning, yep. I feel like the the whole opening monologue tells the story of the whole play. And so I was very confused. I was like, why is this 90 minutes yep. when the first seven minutes tell us the whole thing? It's a very bizarre thing where the, the book spends a lot of time on beats that don't even seem to me to be that, that interesting. Yes. And then the show only really started to click in for me around the, um, the YouTube part just about just over halfway through. Mm-hmm. Yes. Where I was like, oh, now, now this, this is a character. Sherry Renee Scott is portraying a character, a version of herself mm-hmm. that is really funny and interesting and engaging. And there's no question to me that maybe rather than doing this chronologically, yeah. you should have started there or something or found a way to start with that right. character. Um, because off the top, it feels like Sherry Renee Scott and Dick Scanlon going in were like, well, we're going to do this chronologically because that's how you do this. Right, yeah. And it really doesn't seem like the best path forward. Even though she was in one of the more well-known, not chronological plays of all time. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but it was like, she forgot that. Right. And was like, we can't play with structure. Like, we just have to go top to bottom. I don't know. <laughs> that makes me laugh both because of that and because I saw, uh, I saw Tenet last week, like the, um, the Christopher Nolan movie. Okay. It's all about people moving backwards through time as well. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, the, the, the poor man's everyday rapture. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been fun. <laughs> I don't think there was another option, though, I guess, like, when I look at it. I don't know. I like her more seeing it from top to bottom. I mean, there's some, there's some really funny lines. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, what's that one about uh, modulating? Uh, oh, no matter what God said, I was going to modulate. Like, yes. For some reason, that is That's like, very oh, funny. that is so funny. And in the moment... Where it's happening, I think, is when she's performing "Get Happy" and she get, goes her into her own kick line. Yeah, there, there, there are those moments. There's things like performing "Get Happy" at a um, mm-hmm. at a at a at a home for people who are mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Things like because um, it's like she's pretending to she's talking like like she did when she was from Topeka, right? Um, presenting those without any context or further explanation. Maybe it's something that flew in 2010, but with mm-hmm. a 2020 with. A 2021 yeah. hat on. I was like, oh, oh there's yeah. there's got to be a, there's got to be a better way to have that. Just doesn't play, it's not playing for me right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. So that's that's pretty frustrating. So um, in terms of structurally or I guess plot wise, yeah, it's a little egotistical, I guess. Yeah. Which one would expect from a one woman show? Its first title was "You May Now Worship Me," and I prefer that title because it allows us to acknowledge right away the whole thing. Yeah. Because I I felt really weird watching it because I was like, "Are we supposed to like you?" But you're calling yourself a narcissist, and then I'm like, "Oh well, I don't really want to like a narcissist." Yeah. But then I'm like, "Okay, maybe I need to." go and accept your journey that you're on like it just all felt really weird because it was like are you trying to be modest but it's really false modesty I don't know it just made me feel kind of yucky it feels like there is maybe this in 2010 there was this acceptance and this knowledge of who Sherry Renee Scott is as a persona right oh and that's something that 10 years later and to two people who have never lived in Broadway or been a part of that community (laughs) yeah that's um that just doesn't exist right and the show doesn't function outside of that knowledge yes okay great point so like the 
geographic context. Both the geographic and the time context. Because even doing yeah. some research and some reading, I came to understand a little bit more. And like I said, came mm. to have a great deal of respect for Sherry Renee Scott. Oh, yeah. Not, there was no key that I was like, oh, that's what she's doing. Right. The other thing I wonder is like, like this show is not for me. Because, okay, I think it was like Hemingway or Twain. Twain. <laughs> Who said that when you write, you're supposed to just pick one person to write for. Sure. And that actually does broaden your audience. Absolutely. I just think I was not that person. And that's okay. That's okay. I just need to like name that. (laughs) That this like, this show is just not um, something that I necessarily relate to. Yep. What do you think as a Mennonite superlight? This, this show is also very clearly not written for me. Right. Um, which is surprising because, like I said, going in, I was like, oh, I'm a half Mennonite from a rural community. Yeah. That this has the potential to be something uh, really exciting. Totally. I was frustrated that there wasn't more exploration of how tough religion is on oh, yeah. and how hard it is to reconcile right. religious beliefs with um, the liberal arts, basically. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, like, the push and pull of that. Yeah, it's, it just kind of seemed to be, oh, they both exist. Right. And that's, as a half Mennonite, I'm like, that's something I've thought about a lot and talked about a lot with mm-hmm. my family and worked a lot of stuff out. I'm lucky enough to be from a, um, a Mennonite family who is much more liberal than mm-hmm. Sherry Renee Scott's family. There's right. no shunning. There's gay people are very welcome, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It was frustrating to me because there's no question in my mind that Sherry Renee Scott, that there's a story here that's worth telling. Mm-hmm. Going through it, I was like, is this part of the story worth telling? And right. if so, actually tell it. Totally. Or is what's actually worth telling the bizarre experiences you've had as a Broadway star yes. with um, like on- online personalities or something. Right. Because that's interesting. Yeah. And now we're telling a story and it's very fascinating. <laughs> yeah. As well, like I found myself a little a little frustrated. The, uh, the, the whole magician storyline was was interesting. We've got some pathos and then she um, mm-hmm. goes and she, ha- she has an abortion and that's yep. very, very powerful. But then it's done and it doesn't really have any impact after that. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. That is interesting. I feel like this show, I can't believe I'm saying this, might need to be longer <laughs> <laughs> and and less like self-indulgent mm-hmm. because the, the messages she's trying to get at are very good, but because it's framed with like her as a person, it's hard to get past that and into the meat of it. Yeah. So maybe it does need to be longer, or maybe the exploration needs to be just more specific. I would, I would, stri- I would strive for exactly that. One yeah. of the two. I think more specificity would have been a huge boon. Yeah. To this book. I think it's kind of like you said, Paul. Like I think I was missing any sense of vulnerability from her. Yes. Yeah. And I don't necessarily need that in a one-person show, but like. That's why the um, abortion storyline felt so out of place for mm-hmm. me because yep. it's like yeah. we've been keeping things pretty light up until this point, right. like mm-hmm. shunning ceremony aside. So to kind of throw this in here in the last minute was like she got a note in a workshop of like right. more sadness more sad and humility yeah. and this was the best way to do that. Like and I, yeah. I just think that like there needed to be a balance between the self-indulgent persona she was playing and being a person. Yes, totally. Ben Brantley's back, everyone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
He's obsessed with this show. He could not get enough. He says Sherry Renee Scott's name so many times. And he's like, Sherry this and Sherry that. And it's so cute. This is something in this show spoke to Ben Bradley. It was for him. She wrote it for him. You know, it's very sweet. But but he wrote a really interesting thing. And and I took this, um, these few words just out of their out of context because yep. he hit the nail on the head about a one person show which is excavating her own ego and he yeah. didn't mean it derisively but for me in my experience watching it it felt excavating in a bad way like the tedious and yeah, yeah. often self-indulgent side of that totally so he didn't mean it like that but that's my takeaway yeah so i think it works on both sides i can i can agree with that completely so with that said, out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys would you give the book? I think six and a half because uh, it's hard to do this. I think it's hard to like even choose what parts of your life to talk about. Yeah. And I think you mentioned this earlier, like the vulnerability of doing yeah. that, regardless of what our impressions of her performance mm-hmm. were. I, I think that's, a, that's worth some marks. So yeah, six and a half. I'm going to go a fair bit lower. I'm going to say four and a half. Um, I think that if, if, if the purpose of this podcast is what are the circumstances that led to Everyday Rapture finding its way right. into the roundabout season and on Broadway, I don't think the book was a player in that. I think some of the other Ooh. things we're going to talk about are yeah. much more significant players in making this show the success it was. And I think the book holds it back, if anything. So where are we at? Like a five? I guess that's that's the average. Okay. 5.5? Yeah. Let's talk about the music and lyrics. So as previously mentioned, it's a jukebox show. And I actually kind of like the songs they picked. I do too. <laughs> it's... I think for the, por- the part of the show that's grown on me the most since my watch and listen... Yeah. It is the uh, music and lyrics and Tom Kitt's arrangements. Yes, yes, where yes. Initially, I even um, I noted, oh, this is kind of like Vegasy and um, cheesy, and I don't like how broad some of this went, and like some of the choices are so broad. Yes. But I look back on it and thinking on it, I'm like, no, that's exactly what this show needs. I know. And there's a lot of fun, and yeah. there's Tom Kitt's clearly just having a blast oh arranging these. Oh my gosh! These, yes. And he's such a creative arranger. Totally. He managed to make. Take a load off Fanny, sound like nine to five. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is exactly don't, one of the ones don't, I... Don't, yeah. don't, Like, I don't know. He got really excited about the bass and yeah. that was, I don't know. It, but it's cool. It's really cool to listen to. It absolutely is. I also, I had written down like one of the first songs in the show, maybe even the opening number is U2's Elevation. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I had written down... That, like, at, at the time, I was like, wow, that's a weird choice. Mm-hmm. And then looking back on it, I'm just You're so like, charmed by it. Oh, I can't stop actually, thinking about yeah. <laughs> musical theater version of U2's Elevation and how charming that is. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, let me talk about Tom Kitt a little bit. Yeah, talk about I've, Tom Kitt for us. Tom Kitt has had such a charming career mm-hmm. trajectory, the kind of career that I think anyone in my position, any theater musician would long for, where he's kind of made this career composing really smart accessible music Mm -hmm. it's not not so smart that it's hard to listen to like you look at something like next to normal it is a beautiful piece it's Mm -hmm. a it's sensitive it's big it's a rock opera about a woman's schizophrenia yep and it does it unquestionably it does it well 
It's so gorgeous. I cry, I will forever cry when I hear the song Light. Oh, it's so In or wonderful. out of context, I like will I, cry. I get chills thinking about it. The other big reason I'm a big fan of Tom Kitt, Next Normal is one of my favorites. Um, big fan of his work with Lin-Manuel Miranda on um, Bring It On. Oh, um, yep. I mm-hmm. hope someday we find a way to talk about that. We find a way to bend the rules <laughs> to talk about Bring It On because Bring It On is a beautiful disaster of a show yeah. that I love and it's bad. I love it. <laughs> But his really nice work is in American Idiot. He does the yeah. all the arranging, adapting the Amer- the um, the Green Day songs for to function in a musical context with and different voices. With different voices, oh. um, not only does he do that, but he keeps the spirit of the Green Day album alive. Yeah. So much so that I would choose to listen to the Broadway cast recording over the Green Day album yeah, these days I might if I wanted well. to listen to American Idiot, and I don't. <laughs> I don't think that's a diss. I just think Mm -hmm. that's the version that is the more complete version of what it should be. Yes. And that was Tom Kitt picking up on Billy Joe Armstrong's vision and running with it. At the same time as this. At the same time as this. I was going to say, if I had to guess where his energy was, it was probably 75% (laughs) American idiot, 25% throwing together the cabaret arrangements for Everyday Rapture. But they're still very nice work. Yep. Um, Yep. I agree. Well, okay. I have one small problem. Okay. There is a key change that needs to burn, and it's in Take a Load Off Fanny. Right. And it's, like, right toward the end. Yeah. And they they get a breath, and then they're in a new key, and it's awful. It was like they just, we don't get enough time to establish that we're in this new key. Yeah. So then they sound like they're doing it wrong, plus it's moving up, and it's really screlty, and that's my only knock against the music and arrangements Fair is enough. like that one thing. And in general, the arrangements are Vegasy and cabaret yeah. <laughs> and cheesy. You know, there's no there's no nuance here. There's no subtlety here. Yeah. Um, but I think that's what it was. That's what it was called for. Yeah. There was one maybe. What's what's the very end? What's the last song again? Up the ladder to the roof. Oh we yeah. Go up the ladder to the roof. I, I didn't like that <laughs> arrangement as much. That was a little too. That that really felt like the end of a cruise ship show. Right. To me, yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. There, there was maybe a little more nuance to be found in this arrangement. Right. Um, or a different song, even. I, think I couldn't really see why yeah, Up the Ladder to the Roof was, was. A, other than the yeah. fact that it's a great song. And anyway. also, we have to acknowledge the amazing Aida callback, because oh, yeah. that's really what we all want to hear. We yep. want to hear her sing something that she made famous. So that's in the, um, in the, in the YouTube thing, where we've got mm-hmm. the, the kid, the YouTuber, yeah. um, is framed by like a giant... Um, a giant TV computer screen frame or whatever yep. the case may be. The idea is he's a YouTuber who lip syncs along to Broadway performers. <laughs> so it's him lip syncing along to, ostensibly, to Sherry Renee Scott's original Broadway cast recording of uh, My Strongest Suit from Aida. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's very charming to watch him do that. And on the other side of the stage, you can see Sherry Renee Scott singing it for him to lip sync along yes, to. Yes, it's, it's very so nice. great. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely. Because that, it, if I were going to see the show, yeah. that's what I would want. That's You're, the moment I would wait for. Absolutely. Let's hear some strongest suit. Let's hear. I'm surprised. I'm surprised they didn't even do a few more. Yeah, me too. Like they really dragged that one out. Whereas yeah. it could have just sort of been like a little bit of that, like the intro to that, and then they could do like a bit of the Dirty Ron Scoundrels. And exactly. Then, yeah. A little bit of the last five years. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. But then I guess okay, but that complicates the rights to the music. I suppose it does. That makes it more expensive. Yeah. 
But Elton John is so expensive already. Maybe I they got know. Elton John in like a deal. If there's other Disney in there, maybe they got it in like a package or something. Yeah, like maybe she gave him a hug and was like, please. <laughs> and Jason Robert Brown was not interested in yeah, that. Yeah, he's like, I don't like hugs, but Elton John was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> David Yazbek was not interested. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> okay, here we go. Let's do it. Out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys would you give the music and lyrics? Eight and a half. Absolutely. I'm very comfortable with that. Tom Kitt is a treasure. May he continue to do much more work. Um, <laughs> That's our prayer every night. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and please give, please. Well, I just hope he's doing okay. You know what? I just hope yes. he's doing okay these days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we get into direction and choreo? Yes. Or is it direction and norio? Ha! Oh, snap. She oh, went there. snap. Okay. <laughs> Directed by Michael Mayer of Spring Awakening, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and of course, American Idiot. Right. Musical director was Marco Paguia, uh, Peter and the Starcatcher, and then some keyboard work as well. And um, like lots of conducting work. and stuff. Yeah, like does 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 great work in this. Season. So much work, like very busy, but less in terms of like the creative work and music directing work, and more of yeah, keyboard and playing. Which man I mean, after my own heart. It's a fantastic. Oh game. yeah, yeah. Choreographed or choreographed <laughs> by Michelle Lynch. That is the worst word I've ever said. Choreographed ever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yep. Um, she's been an associate on a lot of things, yep. um, but I think this was her first choreo gig, like Broadway choreo credit. You keep on saying this because there's very little choreo. There's very little, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she was the associate on Hairspray and You're in Town. Oh, yep. and then did like a, a choreo for a play as well. Great. Um, and then associate choreographer was Eric Sean Fogel, and the assistant director was Austin Regan. I have very little to say about the direction in choreo here. Because it was good? No. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> in a show like this, I've been very candid on this podcast. I sometimes have trouble differentiating direction from overall vision. Yes. Yeah. And in a show like this, especially where it, we, we talked at length about the book, Mm-hmm. And so much of the onus seems to be on the book. As far as direction goes, oh, she moved around the stage a fair amount. Yeah, like there wasn't much to be done. Yeah. She hit emotional beats. She explored the emotional beats that the book suggested just fine. Yes. So in that case, way to go, director. Yes. The re- things I weren't a, wasn't a fan of were the things that are inherent in the book. We don't actually get a ton of emotional depth. We do go through something like a storyline of um, a relationship falling apart and a um, having an abortion. And yeah. We just kind of sit on it for a second, and now it's over to fun YouTube land. Right. And that's, you get emotional whiplash, and I really, it doesn't feel satisfying, mm-hmm. but is that the fault of the director, or is that the fault of the book, you know? Right. The weirdest moment in the whole show is that shunning ceremony. Like, mm-hmm. this is your beloved cousin that you've set up yeah. in the last that's 20 right. minutes of, like, how much you love him and how important your relationship was growing up. And now you're taking five minutes to do a joke song yes. at his shunning ceremony. Yeah. I am, n- you're going to have to draw me a map to what I'm supposed to be feeling right now. Right. Yep. Yes. Do you, okay, I also wonder, it's the director's job to make sense of the world that you're in, right? Yep. Regardless of what the text is saying, there is some freedom 
totally. from a, a direction perspective. And, a, and in addition to that, the writer is literally right there. You yeah, know, absolutely. it's like if you have a question or you yeah. want to offer, yeah. that is the most perfect context in which to do that. Absolutely. But then I go, okay, they had six days of rehearsal. Like, how much was anyone really concerned about this being better than it was off-Broadway right. or different than it was off-Broadway? Like, we're busy on American Idiot. Literally everyone was working on American Idiot, this whole team, yep. the design team, like Absolutely. everyone. This is li literally the whole point of this, of bringing Everyday Raptor in, is this is going to go in quickly and yeah, cheaply. Yeah, exactly. And it's going to keep audiences happy. Yeah, so yeah. it's like... If there's no obligation to to yep. change anything, because you're like, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it's yeah. like, no, but it was broke already. Anyway, I, yeah, yep. I, I wondered about that. So in that sense, having discussed that, I think I am frustrated with the direction mm -hmm. because there are those beats where there should be a little more nuance between sadness and emotional depth mm -hmm. and the tongue-in-cheek nature. Yes. And I don't think this show quite marries that, especially in the first half. Yeah. The yeah. conflict of that shunning ceremony should be on full display, but it just was not. Yeah. Okay, my other question is, yep. again, because it's the director's responsibility to make sense of the world of the play. Absolutely. Who were those backup singers? <laughs> they were Lindsay Mendez yeah, and I Betsy Wolf, and they us. were fucking yes. incredible. They were incredible. They sounded amazing, <laughs> but what the heck? I'd like to point out that in some of the credits for the show, they were listed as the Mennonites. Oh, yeah, Mennonites. In the, the score, I took a look at the score. That's she what they're listed as. She mentions that, I think, in her oh, first is that in the book as well? She's very like, funny. please welcome the Mennonites. <laughs> I think that's funny. I like that. Yeah, for like a second. And then you're like, but what are they really doing here? You know? <laughs> yeah. Who are they really? So it's, it's obvious to me what their function is. Um, like on a functional level, yeah, music. What their purpose is, yeah. Um, to give um, Sherry Renee Scott just a little bit of breathing room, a second where she can be at eighty instead of one hundred. To bring makes her a glass sense. of water, exactly. To whatever, yeah. yeah. Fill out the sound. Maybe Sherry Renee Scott's having a bad night um, vocally, and mm -hmm. Lindsay Mendez just sings the whole thing because Lindsay Mendez is yeah. one of the best singers on the planet today. <laughs> I love Who knows? Her. Also, to to literally bring her a glass of water. Yeah, that no, happens. literally bring. Yeah. That actually <laughs> happens. Yeah, but like I. <sighs> I think I had trouble wrapping my head around, oh, are they her friends in this scene? Are they yeah. her family in this scene? Like, yeah. I just, it, it was a bit cloudy in that sense. And Absolutely. also based on, and again, we'll get into this later, but what they were wearing didn't actually help us in any way either. No. So. Some clarity there would have been really valuable. Because I love them so much. Yeah. Like, as performers, mm -hmm. as artists. I just wonder if that was one of the big balls that was dropped on yeah. this production. While we're talking about them, let's get into the choreo a little bit. Because that's they're almost exclusively who the choreo ends up focusing Correct. on. Correct. This choreo is functional but underwhelming is my first take. You know how sometimes when you're like, you have to do like a benefit performance or something and yes. you're like, oh, this needs some choreo. Yeah, like okay, we'll, so we'll step, step touch, touch and we'll hand. <laughs> we'll step touch yeah. and hand. Is everyone good with that? Great, let's do it. Yeah. Um, some of it ends up feeling like that. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the YouTube thing with the kid, and the kid's doing a bunch of choreo, and he just brings it alive, and he's very oh, yeah. funny. And I think that's because, we'll get to him, he's a very charismatic performer. Yes. Um, so overall, functional but underwhelming. As a, um, just an audience member, I wouldn't be grumpy seeing yeah. this choreo, mm -hmm. but I'm like, I bet we could have done a lot more. I bet, I bet mm -hmm. more creativity for the same amount of effort on stage would have served us well. Yeah. I come back to who they are in the play. 
songs. Yeah. Like if if we were more specific, like yeah. sometimes they were the backup singers and sometimes they were other people, then there would have been much more flexibility yes, yes, in yes. terms of staging and choreo. Mm. But because they locked them into that backup singer world, yeah. it was like, well, then there's nowhere else to go. That all kind of adds to this whole, sometimes this show feels like Vegas or a cruise ship show. Yes. And that's when it's at its least successful. Mm-hmm. So... I think that that would have made, made a huge difference in making, helping this to rise above that. Yeah. I'm not saying that Vegas or cruise ships are bad with things in any way. Those shows are very valuable. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. And those performers I, are, I think there is, yeah. there's no question that they were, this, that's not what they were trying to do here. Right. Except I would note, I thought that the sexy Mr. Rogers medley was funny. Yeah. Okay. That was funny. And that, that was, was for can you, Can we call Paul. that choreo? She's like rolling around on a box while she's singing to a picture of Mr. Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> I thought oh, that, and it's all, it's like. That feels so wrong it feels so wrong to me <laughs> that was, i like that but that again was... not for me it was not written for me i just i refuse was... to see mr rogers as a sexual being yeah i just i can't i can't do it and i found that funny i thought that that was a very funny thing yeah um the mcfeely line was great did you yeah, do you totally. remember that that little gag probably my second favorite part after the youtube like really my biggest note about it is like it's a de- it's a f- decent enough joke but Wow, we're just, we're still in it. <laughs> yes. Five minutes have passed and we are we're still, still doing in it. it. I yeah. We it. I get it. it. I you want to jump Mr. Rogers' bones. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here's my last thing that I'll say about yeah, yeah. this choreo. I have actually, I mean, not that recently, but a few years ago, was a person who was tasked with choreographing for backup dancers. <laughs> And so I... You were going to say I, a few years ago, had a sex dream about Mr. Rogers. (laughs) (laughs) I swear to God, that's where I thought that was going. No! (laughs) We got quiet and we're all in. (laughs) Yes. A few, you're talking about... um, Breaking Up. On Breaking Up is Hard to Do at Rainbow Stage. Another jukebox musical that has two backup dancers. Exactly. That's a show specifically about a dinner theater. Yeah. Is it about a dinner it's, theater? It's about the Catskills. It, and takes, so pl- yeah, it like, takes place in the Catskills. Yes. And those backup dancers and singers are yeah. functioning as backup dancers and singers in this show within a show. Exactly. Yeah. So I understand yeah. the challenges that come with yeah. how do you make this interesting Absolutely. when this is the convention, right? Mm-hmm. However, I think in the show that I did, it was just that's who that who those characters were and when they were performing that's the nature of it plus Mm -hmm. it was set in a time where you were tied to your microphone right yeah it was like the 60s yeah and so yeah you're behind this mic whereas yeah with this show i don't know so i do understand the challenges with that framework but i would have probably if i would have been the choreographer i would have pushed harder to break out of that more no question. Michelle Lynch is a um, is a skilled choreographer. Mm. Wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten this gig if not. And I bet a lot more clarity over who those backup singers yeah. and dancers are supposed to represent mm-hmm. would have given her a wider toolbox to create something beautiful. Yes, 110%. Yeah. However, Ben Brantley doesn't think so. He loved this choreo. He said, quote, even Michelle Lynch's choreography is double-edged, mixing showbiz slickness with the awkwardness of the terminally introspective. I was like, I didn't get that at all. But again, I wasn't there in the room, so maybe there were things we missed. We have heard Ben Brantley be far harsher to a lot more. Yeah. It's very fascinating how much he loved this show. This is easily the nicest review we've ever seen Ben Brantley give anything. Yeah. He's like obsessed with this show. Yeah. It's so fascinating to me. Why? What is it about Everyday Rapture that just 
tickled what your pickle. What was it? What was it yeah. for you? Okay, so should we put these two together? I direction would love to. and choreo? I'm happy with that. Yep, absolutely. Out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys do you give the direction and choreo, Paul? Six. Oh, that's nice. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> where's your head at? Five. Great. Okay, good. Yeah, not well, far thought, off. Yeah. I just. <laughs> yeah, everyone got on stage, everyone yeah. moved around the stage. I think. Five, and then a, um, an understudy slip because <laughs> I'm probably the only person who thinks that sexy Mr. Rogers is funny. Yeah, that's true. Funny. Yeah. So if we're at, if the question is, what were the circumstances that led to Everyday Rapture finding its way to Broadway? Yeah. I don't think it was the book. Uh-uh. I don't think it was the direction and choreo. No. It may have been the music and lyrics. Okay. But let's talk about, we have two more categories to go. The design and the performances. <laughs> design by Christine Jones, who was at the same time working on American Idiot. Jeez, are you kidding me? Did they get like a discount if they were like... I think that it was like a package American deal. Idiot creatives? Yeah, probably. Um, but Christine Jones also um, worked on Cher Show recently. Sure, sure. And did Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Ooh, parts one and two. So That's this a nice is design. A, that's yeah. a renowned design. Yeah. yeah. So she's really excellent. Yeah. Costume design by Tom Breaker, who has been the costume designer for Saturday Night Live since 1994. That's really cool. Who designed costumes for 30 Rock and was in it as the costume designer. I know who that is. 30 Rock's one of my favorite shows. I can pick out that person. That's hilarious. So because I went (laughs) onto his IBDB page and it was pretty empty. Like it was like everyday rapture and then one other thing. No. And I was like, this doesn't seem right. It's like something seems wrong. So I but Googled the, him and it was just like. All the TV shows that film in New NBC York instead everything. of LA. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. why he's in New York instead of LA. Yeah. Yeah. So totally. very busy in that regard. Yeah. And I think probably a good choice for this. We'll get into that later. Yes. Lighting design by Kevin Adams, who's done a ton of stuff. Spring Awakening, The Share Show, and what else? American Idiot. <laughs> I'm, just a, I'm just imagining them all in two theaters next door. Like, I know. Or like break, on headset. Five, and, five, yeah. In one they've got space. two headsets. They've got one headset connected yeah. to Everyday Rapture <laughs> next door. <laughs> oh, the rehearsal rooms are separated by like a curtain. Yeah, so exactly. they can like poke in and out. Um, okay. Where was I? Oh, yes. Yeah. Sound design by Ashley Hansen. American Idiot, Kurt Eric Fisher. So there's three sound designers. Kurt Eric Fisher, uh, sound designer on Rent and a bunch of other things. And Brian Ronan, who I am assuming would be sort of like the lead sound designer. But I think he was also working on American Idiot at the time. So he was like, I'll call in for reinforcements. But he's done everything. Like he did Charlie Brown in 99. He did Book of Mormon. Like Just just, a real deal sound designer. Yeah. Projection design by Daryl Maloney, also American Idiot. Yeah. Uh, hair design by John Barrett, who doesn't have any other Broadway credits, but I Googled him and I get the impression he is a famous hairstylist. Okay. Like just like a, an actual hairdresser who yeah. became famous in New York. Hmm. Um, and then makeup design by Tiffany Hicks, uh, who congratulations, Tiffany, you've now moved on to interior design and I just want to congratulate you. you on what your career choice. shift. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> That's everyone. I was not prepared for that list. Yeah, no, no. That's an enormous list. Massive. There's really not much design in this show, right? Like, there's not much going no. on, right? For I that would list? Say, Am I crazy? 
The biggest elements were probably the lighting. Yeah. And sound. Sound design, that's a big sound design, yeah. Yeah. And it worked really well. And again, it's tough to know because we weren't there in person, but that's my assumption. Personally, I don't take issue with anything. Yeah. I, especially knowing the context, especially knowing, Mm. you know, I'll bet the option was either do this set for 10, or do the design for this show for $10, or do this on the (laughs) Lips Together Teeth Apart set that's half built. (laughs) (laughs) I think those were their two options. Yeah, yeah. Um... I don't, I don't take objection to it, but it's really, there's virtually nothing for me to talk about. Yeah. I think you know? the lighting I noticed more than anything. Yeah. And I thought it was nice. It was simple, yeah. but effective. And they used like, I, that would be so funny if they just used the lighting plot from Lips Together and Teeth Apart. <laughs> yeah. They were just like, screw this. We'll just use yeah, the we're just plot doing, and make got, our The hang's own already lights. done. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> the hang's done. Yeah. I will say the two things I hated the most were the... Costumes for the backup dancers, sure. the Mennonettes. Yep. I thought they were so stupid <laughs> because, okay, and I also hated Sherry Renee Scott's outfit. It was so stupid. Yeah. But I'll tell you why. Yes, please. Because I hate 2010 fashion. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it. Like, I look back on it and I'm like, what was I wearing? Yeah. Like, what was I thinking? Absolutely. And I, and I feel... Like, it just reminds me of that <laughs> so <laughs> much <laughs> that I, it just, I was like, no, That's I don't, so funny. I don't want it. So it might not even be a bad costume design. It no, might have been, at not the time it was like, oh, they're dressed in really nice contemporaries. Yeah. I feel like the Mennonettes are still the wrong costume though. Yeah. But again, that circles back to who they are. Totally. Right? Um, but Sherry Renee Scott's, I could, I'm sure, get behind if I just didn't have this disdain for the fashion of the time. Yeah. And see, I didn't get contemporary fashion. I thought she looked like she was about to perform in Branson, Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> she looks very 1970s country star, which makes I, sense yeah, in the context of like true. when she grew up and where she grew up. Yeah. yeah. But I also don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a bit pedestrian and not in the right way. So that's the only like real... Yeah. Major flaws. I really like the projections, though. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They got a. They got goofy projections of Mister Rogers. They've got a goofy projection of Jesus. At Jesus, some point. like and moving, like nodding, and being, yeah, that's pretty oh, funny. That was so funny to me. Um, and it's funny as well because I can there especially it. I can see where it's like, hey, our projection designer bud who's working on American Idiot. Yeah. Do you have like a weekend to make us yes, some projections to do totally. this? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. So yeah, that's um, how I felt about it. Okay, let's do the rating. Out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys? Uh, seven. Yeah, I'll do seven. I'll take seven. Yeah. I, um, I'll take seven with the caveat being, if the question is, what was it that brought Everyday Rapture to Broadway? It certainly wasn't the design. No. <laughs> no. It's, there's no question that this is especially the American Idiot design team. Can you come in for a weekend and make this? Yes. And as a favor to the Roundabout Theater, they came and did it. Yeah. That's fine. That's good. <laughs> so... Let's talk about the performances. So we've already covered who everyone is, right? Sherry Renee Scott as herself. Yep. Uh, Lindsay Mendez. Yep. And Betsy Wolf mm-hmm. as Top Harmony and Bottom Harmony. I don't know. What are their names? Like, they, they don't name them. But I the think, Mennonettes. I think Lindsay Mendez, Top. Their names are Harmony and Melody. Yes, right. they are. Yeah. No, they're not. They I made that up. <laughs> Um, and then Eamon Foley yeah. as our lip-syncing uh, YouTube star. This cast is awesome. I really like everyone. Yeah. It's 
so funny, as we mentioned, alluded to earlier in this podcast, mm-hmm. to see Lindsay Mendez and Betsy Wolf, who had already at this time were doing very well and were on a trajectory to be to be an, the enormous um, stars and workhorses and excellent performers that they are today. Yes. It's so funny because any of them could carry this show. Oh my gosh, You know what yes. I mean? They're so skilled. Yes. And Eamon is a show stealer, I think, specifically for that as well. This yep. is his last Broadway credit, I believe. Um, before that, did um, did some work in Gypsy. Did, oh, like, the okay. Kid, the Kid in Assassins and the Assassins Revival. <gasps> Ooh, neat. Did um, two seasons of Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Oh, that's <laughs> where we know his name from. And then um, did 13, which I'm sure we'll cover someday. Oh, uh, yes. Yep. Yes, yes. Oh, this cast is fun. Yeah, I really like, like it. So much so that, and I will say I like, I really like Sherry Renee Scott's performance just as a, on a performance basis. I like a lot of it. Yeah. This is a big, a big mountain to climb doing a, essentially a one person show. About yourself. About yourself. Um, and while it's not, not perfect, not mm-hmm. note perfect, there's a lot that I really like there. If we're talking about what was it that brought this here, mm-hmm. there's no question in my mind it was the, the performances and Sherry oh, yeah. Scott's performance. Yeah, absolutely. They went, Megan Mullally's out. People who bought these tickets want to see like a powerhouse woman yep. perform on this stage and be kind of sassy and irreverent and um, energetic. Yeah. This kind of fits that general vibe, even though content-wise, it doesn't really seem like it's mm-hmm. in line with Lips Together in a lot yeah. of ways. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's my diagnosis. Where's your head at? It feels weird to criticize Sherry Renee Scott's performance because she was technically playing herself. So then if I criticize the performance, then it feels like I'm criticizing her. But I actually think that maybe she wasn't playing her true self so I can... I can separate them a and little she's clear, bit. She's clear about that. Where it's like, these, these aren't things. Yeah, that's This is true. not a factual depiction of what happened. Yeah. So I, I thought actually in terms of her acting, her storytelling, she was very engaging, which I don't yep. think I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting, but I thought her text work was really good. She was, she had me captivated yep. in some of the, the moments. I, and, and the energy that she comes out with is really great because she sort of gets you hyped up for her and then <laughs> it gave me yeah. um, like mom on vacation in the okay uh, i was Mexico gonna say vibes, like ellen you know? degeneres dancing yeah totally but, <laughs> <laughs> this is like but like mom's on vacation yeah this mom's this on week. vacation yeah. <laughs> totally so as we know ben brantley is like totally obsessed with sherry Can't Renee get Scott. this is ben brantley's favorite show he's ever seen and he writes quote miss scott has never shined brighter or more illuminatingly never Okay. I mean, he's seen more of her than, than I have. I, su- I suppose so. So I will trust that. Just overwhelmingly, Ben Brantley cannot get... <laughs> and, this, and this was echoed by a lot, of, um, a lot of the reviews at the time. A lot of virtually across the board, to be honest, people. Big yeah. fans of Sharon A. Scott's performance. Mm-hmm. And rightfully so. Like, I, like, like we said, there's a lot of magnetism and charisma that mm-hmm. is lost um, when you're not seeing live theater live, yes. anyone who's seen a digital production this year knows that. So mm-hmm. if you're just watching a boot or something, that's a bit of that's yeah. going to be lost. And even in that, Sharon A. Scott does a very nice job. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure I'm sure it was pretty electrifying to watch her. In oh, person. I bet. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So further to your previous point about that being the reason that mm-hmm. it would be chosen. Yep. I think that's correct because when I think about Megan Mullally and I think about who she is. She's a celebrity, but she's Mm -hmm. pretty niche. Absolutely. You know, unless you've seen 
her in Will and Grace or heard her. She sings, like she does some cabaret stuff. She does. So in terms of finding a performer who is at that same level, so not too expensive or not more expensive, right? Because this is last minute. We got to go. This is a last minute put in. So you're like, okay, who is easily recognizable, approachable and funny and is not a... a celebrity celebrity and that will have to pay them like a bazillion dollars to do this. Yeah. This is the most appropriate substitution. I can see the logic for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty Absolutely. amazing that it that it worked out like that. I look at this and I I think that the the diagnosis is correct. That's why this show got brought in. Mm-hmm. Like we've talked about, I don't I'm really not convinced this show hits the way it's supposed to. Right. At least it didn't the way I received it. Mm-hmm. And for that reason I'm like, man, I bet Maybe there could have been something else that we could have put in that would have right. worked out better. That said, it's a, it's a tough situation for the roundabout theater to be in. Mm-hmm. And this was the best choice. Great. And it did well. It did very well for itself, like from what it, I understand. It really held up. And I yeah. think that's saying something. Because if you get, let's say you're like a week into previews and everyone starts telling each other, you need to get rid of your ticket. People will cancel their ticket if they really feel like it's not going to be good, if they've heard that it's not good. Totally. So. So we've talked about Sherry Renee Scott. Yep. We've, there's not, I wish there was more to talk about for Lindsay Mendez and Betsy Wolf. I know, me Um, too. But just to say that their charisma shines um, throughout the entire theater, throughout the whole world. Yep. They are angels of light. (laughs) And. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to, I want to give him his own special section. Yeah. Because he is so funny. Yeah, he is really funny. I thought he was so funny. Like, his comedy is very clean. Like, yeah. it was it timed really nicely. Yeah. There's something about addressing the internet's Broadway culture. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. The, um... <laughs> You know, this is a this is a culture that we are uh, we are a part of. Hello mm-hmm. to anyone who's listening from the internet Broadway world. Yeah, uh, it's good to see you. <laughs> and that's such a fascinating niche that's kind of blossomed on the internet and on YouTube yes. specifically. It looks like, yeah. yeah. And so having that addressed and the bizarreness of that addressed in kind of a a really loving way, yeah, it was, was. very very charming to me. Yeah, and <laughs> it was kind of self deprecating on the part of yeah. Sherry Renee Scott, which is why I think I like this part so much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> yeah. it was like, oh, good. Now we get to the thing of like how you really felt about yeah. something that was happening. Yes, you know, absolutely. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. So with that said, out of ten playbills, mm-hmm. how many monkeys would we give the performances? Nine. Ooh, good number. <laughs> yep, I'll go nine. Yeah. Sherry Renee Scott's a seven point five for me. Yeah. Okay. But. Um, Lindsay Mendez and Betsy Wolf are great, and Eamon was extremely charming. Yeah. And that boosted up a little bit. Really good performances. Easily the strongest part of this show. Yeah. It's this this show is born on the back of the performers. More, oh yeah. Even more so than others. All shows are, but this in a big way. Yes. Let's talk about the Tonys this year. Ah! <laughs> Okay, this was a weird Tony's, and I want to clarify with you. Were we hanging out at this Tony Awards? We must. I, I have distinct memories. because We haven't talked about 2010 Tony's yet, but I remember... This is my favorite Tony's. ...watching Catherine Zeta-Jones Yes, with you. okay, okay. 
either we watched it together or we talked about it a lot. Yeah. Was this the awards show as well, where she got the, she won the award she, and then talked about how much she loved having sex with Michael Douglas? Basically, she was like, <laughs> and to the man I get to sleep with every night. And you're like, oh, I told Daphne about this. Daphne did not believe it. Yeah, Daphne could no, not believe that that happened. That happened. <laughs> it was a wacky Tony. It was crazy. And this was up for best musical was um, Memphis. Yep. Fela, uh-huh. an American idiot. Million Dollar Quartet. And Million Dollar Quartet. So the, I think it was the 64th Tony Awards were um, on June 13th, 2010. Yeah, you're totally right. And the cutoff for nominations was on April 29th. And this show opened, Everyday Rapture opened on the 29th. So it was like literally the last second. It was amazing. Um, so they were right on the cutoff date. Sean Hayes hosted because that was the Promises Promises year, I Yep, think. absolutely it was. Yeah, so Sean Hayes hosted. Okay, and then the other thing I wanted to bring up, Tony Award drama from that year. Yes. Okay, so the Tony administration decided on the 30th, so the day after the nominations were closed, that American Idiot and Fela were ineligible for um, the Tony nominations for best score. Because more than, uh, sorry, fewer than 50% of their, of the score was written for the stage production because of like. So it's a jukebox. Exactly. Well, that's bullshit. Yeah. So that happened. And then also on May 14th, so a few weeks after nominations had closed, they withdrew the nomination for best costume design for Ragtime, like for that revival, yeah. because the costumes were based on the original costumes. What? And like, yeah, so it says here, Santo Lacosto's costumes for the revival of Ragtime are predominantly those from the original 1998 production and therefore do not meet the Tony rule, which states work that substantially duplicates work from prior productions is ineligible. That's drama. Anyway. She's just... between that <sighs> and Memphis taking Best Musical, which was a, I remember being shocked at the time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and Catherine Zeta-Jones oh my God. walking away with um, Best Performance, <laughs> literally after doing her performance. That was and so being bad. dreadful. <laughs> that was so bad. But on the plus side, she gets to go home to Michael Douglas yes, and his and magical lovemaking, apparently. She acknowledges that that's the true gift. That is the true, the that's the real award. The real award is, Michael is getting Douglas. to sleep with Michael Douglas every many night. Many people don't know this. It's actually, she mentioned it because there's a little Michael Douglas printed on every Tony award. <laughs> It's a bizarre piece of Tony trivia. spinning medallion has his face on one side. So she was saying, now I have two. Yeah. I have Michael Douglas's. Oh my God. Okay. So yes, you are correct. So Memphis won and then also nominated for Best Musical were American Idiot, Fela, Million Dollar Quartet. This is a weird year. There was something weird going on this year. It was a really weird Tony's too. I remember feeling really... Strange about it. In the year where the win- where Catherine Zeta-Jones takes Best Actress. Right. And it seems like just an award for the name. Yes. So uh, Everyday Rapture was nominated for, I believe, two awards. Yep. So Sher- Sherry Renee Scott was nominated for Best Actress in a Musical. And it's so funny because it, it always lists your character. And so yep. it's like Sherry Renee Scott as herself. Yep. <laughs> I remember being like, what? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> like not understanding the nature of the production. Yeah, totally. At the time. And then uh, they were also nominated for Best Book. So 
her and Dick Scanlon were nominated. But, of course, no wins because the little tiny show. Yeah, right. And it was a limited run, right? So, you know, what for? Wow. Someday we'll talk about these Tony Awards a little more. (laughs) So, because of the Tonys not necessarily contributing to the closure of this show, obviously, because, you know, limited run. I did a bit of digging in terms of the statistics of what some shows were um, selling. Nice. In order to see if I thought that Everyday Rapture would have ran over 100 performances had it been an open-ended run. Yep. And I've come to a conclusion. Okay, let's let's hear it. Where's your head? I think it would have cracked 100 performances. I think it would have too. Yep. Probably would have sailed to a smart 150 or something. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think so because if it would have been marketed properly, it could have done that. I just, yeah. of course, that's such a big question mark when it comes to a lot of the shows that we talk about is mm. like, oh, it wasn't marketed properly. And so it wasn't supported in the way that it needed to make those performances. So I think if they would have, yeah, had an open-ended run, marketed it properly, we would have seen over 100 performances of Everyday Rapture. So Jill... Should this be a musical? Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'd almost rather hear the story from someone else. Yeah. Like, I think I appreciate what she's trying to do. Yeah. But I do not relate to her. A person talking about her um, semi-struggles because they never really felt like real problems. So I don't feel like I want to listen to someone half discuss the conflicts in their life who has been a very successful person and then called themselves semi-successful. Like it just, I would rather hear this from someone who is on the up and up or yeah, just from someone else. I couldn't agree more. I think there is a success, a a show in here, a show in here that would even have life outside of being performed by Sherry Renee Scott in Mm -hmm. a significant way. It's just got to be rewritten yeah. Re-examine all that. Like I said, there's all that problematic content that really, we can't have that anymore. Yep. Um, could, shouldn't have even had that in 2010. You got to re-examine that and I think re-examine the actual structure of the show. Yeah. Yep. I think that also ties into my problems with the marketing is like, I don't think you could have it both ways. I don't mm. think you can say that you're a semi-star when you're kind of not. Yeah. No, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. you're, you're not a nobody yeah. and you're not half a nobody yep. you you've been in some pretty big stuff yes yep. and like just own that say this is yeah. the, this is the true behind the scenes story of totally. my real life it's like yeah but yeah. you're trying to play it off like you're some kind of c-list broadway yeah. celebrity no. and that's really not playing yeah it's yeah. yucky to me yeah we like you share renee scott let's we're here to yes. see your show oh yeah i love it yeah absolutely we're on yeah. your side yeah 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 and we like your success like, yeah. I think maybe she's afraid to be like, I've done it. I did it. No, but dude, he, you like, founded a record label. You started in shows. Own you it. For things. This is yeah. great. Own it's it. It's fantastic. <laughs> flop, bop, or make it stop? Let's flop, bop, or make it stop. <gasps> Jillian Willems. Oh, is no. this show... Whoa, it doesn't really apply here. It, well, okay, it, well, let's see. Let's see. You can still apply. I think we can make it work. Yeah, so, is this show a flop? In an emotional sense. It was not a flop financially. <laughs> Is this show a flop in, in the hearts of, um, of the worldwide theater community? Yeah. Is it actually a secret bop mm-hmm. or a not-so-secret bop, uh-huh. like Ben Brantley says? Or is it so bad we need to make it stop? I don't need to make it stop necessarily. I just can't decide if it's like a flop or a bop. 
Yes, I know exactly what you mean. Because I'm like, there's nothing about it that's like really jumping out at me to be like, yeah, I need to listen to this over and over forever and learn every line. I think this is, as it stands right now, a flop. Yeah. Because this show can't exist outside of this production. Right. In any substantial way. Mm-hmm. Without Cherry Renee Scott, and not just Cherry Renee Scott, but like we discussed, the context that surrounded her at that time. Yep. Cherry Renee Scott and Dick Scanlon, this could be a secret bop um, with, some, with some work. Mm-hmm. And if you would like that, um, please let us know. We're happy to consult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's it. That was it. That's Cherry Renee Scott's Everyday Rapture. The story of a young semi-Mennonite, half-Mennonite, and her journey to Broadway. I'm not going to lie. Like, before knowing what this show was, I thought, based on the, like, synopsis that I had found, that it was going to be similar to, like, Kimmy Schmidt. Ha! Oh, yeah? Of, like, like super naive learning how the big city works? Yeah! Oh, that's so funny. I th- really thought that, because I was like, <laughs> oh, I'd watch that. That's, like... That sounds fine. Kind of nice, and... Probably a, a pretty accurate depiction of what it would feel like to to go to the big city. Well, that's I don't know. So funny. But yeah, that's what I had in my mind. So thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget, if you like what we're doing, to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. We love what we do. Get, get in touch with us. We're happy yeah. to chat always. I would love to hear from you. For now. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Dad. Thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs>Hi everyone, this is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod, on Twitter at monkeyplaybills, or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theater podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on Tuck Everlasting.